Good morning. Um, it's so good to read the word of, of God with you, for you. A couple weeks ago, Jeff gave us an assignment, and I kind of bristle at assignments, but I really appreciated this one. He said, um, sit and read the word thoughtfully, reflectively, and intimately. So I've been practicing that because I've always been a good student. And so since my teacher encouraged me to do so. But today I'd like to invite you to listen to the word thoughtfully, reflectively, and intimately. And just notice what, what catches your ears and captivates your heart. This is the word of the Lord from Philippians 1. For my life is about Christ and him alone. And my death, when that comes, will mean great gain for me. So if it's his will that I go on serving here, my work will be fruitful for the message. I honestly wouldn't know how or what to choose. I would be hard-pressed to decide. I lean toward leading the, leaving this world to be with the anointed one because I can only think that would be awesome, <laughs> much better. But to stay in this body of flesh, even with all its pains and weaknesses, would best serve your needs. Now that I think of it, I am sure of this. I would prefer to remain and to share in the progress and joy of your growing belief. When I return to you, we will celebrate Jesus, Jesus the Anointed One, even more. So here is what I want you to do. Conduct yourselves as true and worthy citizens of Christ's gospel, so that whether I make it or don't make it to see you, I will at least hear that you continue to stand united in one spirit, single-minded in purpose, as you struggle together for the faith in the gospel. Now just take a moment as you hear the words of the psalmist. The psalmist is going to help us respond to the word we just heard. So let your heart open to responsiveness to God for his word to you, to us today. I will lift my praise above everything to you, my God and King. I will continually bless your name forever and always. My praise will never cease. I will praise you every day. I will lift up my, your name forever. The Eternal One is great and deserves endless praise. His greatness knows no limit, recognizes no boundary. No one can measure or comprehend his magnificence. One generation after another will celebrate your great works. They will pass on the story of your powerful acts to their children. Your majesty and glorious splendor have captivated me. I will meditate on your wonders and sing songs of your worth. 
And we today, we confess there is nothing greater than you, nothing mightier than your awesome works, God. And I will tell of your greatness as long as I have breath. The news of your rich goodness is no secret, and your people love to recall it and sing songs of joy to celebrate your righteousness. The Eternal One is gracious, and he shows mercy to his people. For him, anger does not come easily, but faithful love does. And his faithful love is rich and abundant. This is the good word of God to you, to us, and to me. Thank you so much, Beth. The word of the Lord. Good afternoon to you all. It's great to have you guys here. Um, Darby, is your little one with you? No. Next door, Alana. Oh my gosh. So good to see you. Um, today, we are going to be um, looking a little bit closer at Paul's letter there in Philippians 1. And um, I just, I love that translation of scripture. I love, again, like that feeling of intimacy that comes with it. And hope today that we're invited right into the spirit of it. I think that Paul would probably be a little bit surprised that we're reading his mail, right? He, he wrote that with a specific group of people in mind. Um, but what you see so clearly in that is just his pastor's heart. He just loves these people in this church. And uh, as we unpack it, we're going to see a little bit about his circumstances he's writing this and kind of the power of how he's setting his mind on the things that matter most. I, I love in that psalm as well, you see the psalmist writing in response to God, writing in how he reacts to this truth. And so often the psalms are these, what they would call psalms of orientation, setting our hearts on the things that really, really matter. And oftentimes we see underneath some of the layers of those psalms just how disoriented life can become. Sometimes the psalmist has been oriented and lost it. He's grown off course. And one of the beautiful things that the psalms give us is a reorienting our life back. So much of life we're navigating through and responding to kind of the twists and turns along the way. And what we get with Scripture is this ability to set our bearing and focus and where we've gotten off track to adjust and to become on track. I talked last week a little bit about church values and how this kind of creates a, an atmosphere here. This is the culture of the church that we're trying to create. And I was suggesting these three to us, that the church would feel like a space that is authentic, a space that is humble, and a space that is deep. I think for me, these have always kind of been uh, values that I've held. And I, I say that not to suggest that I somehow embody all of these. I hope to some extent I do. But, but the truth is, when you claim these values as you, like, look at me, I'm so authentic, right? Can you think of a more inauthentic thing to say? Or I'm so humble, right? You're like, boosh, like the just crushes, you burst the bubble of humility just by naming it. Depth, look how deep I am. Like, is there anything more shallow than that? Um, but, but these values have a way of orienting us to 
towards what is true. Our hearts, where we desire deep down to be. And last week, uh, Bruce Camp, one of our missionaries, was here. And he came up to me afterwards and he's like, Jeff, I, I thought when you said the values, it was authentic, authenticity, humility, and death. <laughs> and I was like, like, Bruce, that's so dark. But he's like, but I was thinking about it. Like, oh, how cool, right? Like, how important for us to be thinking and remembering that. And while I don't think death is a value per se, it is certainly a good reminder that our time on earth is limited, that each moment we have is a gift, and how this reality, when we see this clearly, can transform the way we live. With time really so scarce, how are we going to invest that? How are we going to spend that on the things that matter most? I'm looking at my friend Jack here thinking... Whew, right? You see that. Changes everything. Psalm 90 says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Understanding that brevity, the, the, the few days that we have here, like Scripture reminds us, it's like grass that you know quickly grows and then withers. How do we spend that on the things that matter most? As Mary Oliver would say, what will you do with this one wild, precious life? And I was reading this little aphorism from Kevin Kelly. He said, your passions should fit you exactly, but your purpose in life should exceed you. Work for something much larger than yourself. I think that's what I like about these values is they beckon me beyond myself. That these aren't things that I can just simply attain on my own. I need help getting there. And that we have this God who's constantly drawing us into a larger story, true to our passions, true to our values, but something that takes relying on Him to achieve. And this idea, as we talk about transformation being kind of the point of the class that we're all signed up for here, to be transformed, to become like Christ, this helps us to not miss the point along the way. I've told this story before that I had a professor, one of the hardest classes I took in seminary, I was a philosophy major, and we took this class called metaphysics, which is like the thing behind the thing. Like, what is red? Right? Like that kind of thing. This is what philosophers sit around and think about. And it's so like abstract. What are colors? What are numbers? Like, And you're like, oh gosh, your brain kind of fries. And we all try to act like we know what we're talking about, but deep down we're all kind of in the in the fog. And there was this one student who like spoke during class going like, oh, I think it's like this, this, and this. And the professor who was like, this is like J.P. Moreland, he was like the hero professor at the school at that time, said, oh, John, you've missed the whole point of this class. And there was this like audible gasp, like, <gasps> like how terrifying is that? We're like all scarred for John, you know. And then later somebody in the class was like, can we go back and I have a question about something you said right before you told John he had missed the whole point of the class. <laughs> and the whole class laughs. And all of a sudden JP's like, okay, I'm sorry. You haven't missed the whole point of the class. But I think what a terrifying thought, right? Can you imagine like at the end of your life, like, oh, Miss the whole point of that class. <laughs> like, shoot. Like, I want to get it right, you know. And, and I think this is kind of what we study when we come here to church on Sunday is like, don't miss this. In fact, I love that they moved 
from the end of the week to the beginning of the week with the church and the day that we gather. It's like setting a course for our week. How are we orienting our lives on what matters most? How are we reorienting our life where we've become disoriented so that we're spending our time on the things that matter most? And and the truth is this is connected so deeply to who we are, to like our very identity, who God sees us to be. Understanding that helps us value our time. We understand our value. There was this little statement Dallas Willard made one time. I heard him speak, and it was kind of off the cuff, but he just said simply, you are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. Go think about that. You're a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. This is who God sees you to be. And as we have this time here on earth, we have tremendous opportunity to invest this in things that don't perish, but that last forever. And when Paul is writing this letter to this church in Philippi, he, he starts with this beautiful prayer. He says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's his prayer. For each of his people, each of his little sheep and his flock, he's going, I pray that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. This is what our lives get oriented towards. The things that matter most. I read this crowd breaker question the other day and it said, what is the most impressive thing in your life that would impress you, your five-year-old self? Like if you could go back and be like, five-year-old Jeff, guess what we did? Be like, we became a pastor. And five-year-old Jeff would be like, I thought we were going to be a spy. <laughs> like, dang it, that's a little disappointing, right? Like, or I was going to be that pro athlete, or I was going to be like that really big deal. And it, it's funny how maybe some of the things that we're accomplishing today may not have been so impressive. I, I hope he would at least love I wrote I wrote a book. Jeff would be like, okay, I like books. I like reading. Um, I, I mean, whatever that thing is, I hope for me, like I go, oh, there's something that is so beautiful about the inspiration of that little child that just wants to do something glorious. But the truth is our, our understanding of glory gets shaped as we go through life. To understand the things that are deep are not always the things that catch, catch our eyes. All that glitters is not necessarily gold. Hopefully we're seeking to understand the things that are of deep value, even though maybe they get missed. We have to discover those things. We learn those things. We learn to savor those things. My five-year-old self probably wouldn't love like a ribeye steak. Would want a hot dog. Our tastes get refined, our ability to know and truly treasure the good and the deep and the beautiful things. But these things are still true to me. Jeff, like when God looks at Jeff, he goes, I want you to be Jeff. And when he looks at each one of you, he thinks the same thing 
about you. Too often we compare these things to each other. Like if I only had that, if I had that talent or that job or that opportunity. But what God sees, this eternal being of value, he sees right into your heart. And his goal is to help you be you. Lewis says this, like the more of God you have, it's like being salted where that salt, it doesn't taste like salt. It, it helps the thing it's salting taste more like itself. If that's a steak, it tastes more like a steak. If that's vegetables, more like a vegetable. That the salt is there to accentuate, accentuate the flavor of the thing that it's being salted. And like you, the same for you and for your heart, that when you add God to this equation, you end up being more like you. Thomas Merton puts it like this. He says, a tree gives glory to God by being a tree. For in being what God means it to be, it is obeying him. It consents, so to speak, to his creative love. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. The more a tree is like itself, the more it's like him. If it tried to be like something else, which has never intended to be, it would be less like God. And therefore, it would give him less glory. And God shows up in this world through our hearts, through our lives, each one of us showing a clear picture of who God is as God becomes more and more present in us. But there's a problem that in each one of us, there's a sort of division within us, a brokenness that's there that takes glory and like feeds off of it in almost a cancerous way. That ego in us that takes even our humble acts and makes ourselves the hero of our own story. And as God is calling us to this glory, there's something in us that's constantly trying to rob God of that, to steal that for ourselves. And when we do, we break it. We turn that light inward, which is not meant to be. It's to shine outward. And so when I say my values are like authenticity and humility and depth, hopefully these are things that protect me from becoming inauthentic. Things that protect me from becoming arrogant, not humble. Things that keep me from being shallow. The Benedictines have this principle that I think is great. Um, one of my good friends is a Benedictine monk, and um, you've, some of you have met him. His name's Francis. And... Um, each one of them comes up with what they call a rule of life. It's like a, a principle. It's, it's rooted in who they are, their values, even their gifts, but it's like this guiding thing that's going to hold them true to what they're called to do. And I love this idea. I've like fooled around with it a bit and like trying to work on my own. But I think in our text today, I think we see Paul's. Paul is going to give us his rule of life. He's going to say this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I wonder if for Paul, he said this every single day, a way of keeping his eyes focused on what mattered most, keeping his attention on the thing of ultimate value. And again, like I said, we need this kind of thing because we go through life and get disoriented, don't we? And I'm... I appreciate this about the Bible is that it's authentic enough to walk us through these stages of people's lives. 
Solomon is going to lament like what God has made crooked, who can make straight. Like what an honest statement. Sometimes life, we look at it and go, that doesn't make any sense. Like God, why, why did you let that happen? Or Psalm 13, David's honest prayer is like, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? These honest prayers, these disoriented prayers that we see in Scripture remind us that we too will have moments like this, sometimes seasons like this of our lives, where we just don't understand what's going on. And I say this because I think Paul was in the middle of one of these situations. He's writing this letter from prison. And he tells us that he's in chains and quite literally like chained to somebody else. In 2 Corinthians, as he talks about this moment, he says, I was completely overwhelmed beyond my strength so that I despaired of life itself. Like Paul too had these moments of deep disorientation. And yet you hear in this letter, he's found it again. That this guiding principle has directed him back and not just given him something to long for, but a whole new way of seeing his current circumstance. In the verses that precede our passage, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Paul is chained at all times to a soldier in the Praetorian Guard. He's like seen as that much of a threat. The the gospel was coming out and it was proclaiming this new kingdom and they were saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so this movement as it was starting, they saw Paul, oh, he's the threat. And Paul, like we've talked about, is just brilliant. He's this guy who's able to see and articulate deep truths so well. And he will enter into these public squares and just start preaching. And people start coming and flocking. They form these churches. When Paul leaves, there's this thriving community that endures beyond. He was just an incredible church planter. And they're like, we just got to take this guy out. So sure enough, they do. They throw him in prison and they lock him up to somebody And as we've talked about, you could imagine Paul, he's this totally type A, like let's just go out and get the job done. And he's probably sitting there in this cell thinking, what a waste. I mean, Paul, if you're looking at the chessboard, Paul is the queen. (laughs) And you've put him over here in the corner where he's not doing any work. What a mistake. This is the guy, God, that you want to place the front lines. This is the guy who you want to utilize strategically. He's the one who's going to get the job done. And and Paul, in his like need to achieve, which we know this about him, is sitting there in despair and and comes back to this truth. Like, well, chained to this guy all day. What if I just start talking to him? I mean, can you imagine? You're like chained to one of the most persuasive apologists in the world, right? Like, what chance does this guard have against Paul? Paul just starts preaching to the guard who's chained to him. And he's going like, oh my gosh, these guys are all converting, right? All these Roman soldiers are like, hmm, tell me more, right? And he like all of a sudden goes, whoa, wait, 
Like the gospel is flourishing in this tiny little cell. Paul, who's been sidelined, has this opportunity to minister and then be an example to others and then write these letters. And all of a sudden, his whole reality is transformed. The theologian Matthew Henry says, this is where you see God's alchemy, which is an interesting word. And alchemy was like this, people were looking for this magic ingredient to, or, you know, some sort of way of turning lead into gold. Right? That was the idea behind alchemy. And Matthew Henry is going, that's like quite literally what God does. He comes into this worthless situation and turns it into gold. Not just like shifting focus, but like in the reality, like, oh my gosh, you guys, what God is doing for the kingdom in this tiny little cell. But not just in the cell, but in his own heart. And Paul says that. I mean, it's such an interesting line. He's going, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That this situation that he's in, he goes, oh, wait, wait, not only is this guy next to me being saved, but I'm being saved. And sometimes in the translations, they're not sure what to do with that word. They'll say, well, we'll call it my deliverance. But the, the word is salvation that Paul was saying, What's happening in this cell is my heart is being saved. And we go, well, what, what does that mean? Isn't Paul like saved at the moment of conversion? And you go, yes. From the penalty of sin, he is saved once and for all. But from the effects of sin, this seems to take a lifetime for us. This ongoing purification. So Paul's sitting here going, I must need this. He's probably going, I do need this. Paul, who has all this zeal, who seeks achievement, who's risen to the top of every single class that he's been involved with, realizes it's not a bad thing for me to have to sit over here on the sidelines and just pay attention humbly and say, God, what would you have me do? And isn't that true for us too? We want to take our passions and go, what's the most like linear, straight path to success? And God's like, whoa, slow down, Jeff. Because if I had all that power and all that influence that like deep down I long for, God's like, oh, you would just turn into a monster, right? Let's like slow this down. Like God's going to give you just enough just enough to let your heart like surrender and give back and say, not my will, but your will be done. When Paul says to live as Christ, part of that is this is the model that was set for him. Jesus going like, rather not do the cross, but not my will, but your will be done. If there was ever an example for us and how to respond to the meaningful work God has called us to. It's that posture of trust and that posture of surrender. As we long to do things that are larger than us, bigger than us, more dependent, God is going, okay, then you got to trust me. you got to be willing to step into times that seem crooked to us, that don't make sense to think like, God, I can see a better way of doing this. Like, let me just take the wheel, right? Let me... 
So to pull himself back into this posture, this is Paul. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And this is, to me, I think, I love this so much that um, it's not just to follow in Christ's footsteps, not just to go, well, let's just do what Christ did. Now, of course, that's of deep value and importance. But the truth is, he's going, oh yeah, this is about Jesus. And the, the truth is, there in that little cell, Jesus is right there with Paul. So often in our despair, we lose sight of that. And in those times, we like just can spiral into like even bitterness or resentment or all of these things. This can go so wrong. How we respond in these situations matters so much. It can purify us or it can harden us. And Paul, by recognizing this, brings Jesus back into the equation, realizes he's not alone. Christ is here. So often when I'm despairing, it's like my vision just shrinks and becomes totally myopic. All I see is myself, my problems, my fears. Poor me. So that question, where is Jesus in this circumstance, is incredibly helpful in pulling our gaze back and going, oh, you're right here. And Jesus, when he endured the cross, we're told, did it for the joy that was before him. That for Jesus, this was all about restoration of relationship. And that joy is you, this like longing for you. And sure enough, even in the midst of whatever hardship you're in, Jesus is going, no, we can do this together. Like my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so you see here, Paul is reorienting his life back in focus on what matters most. But that thing that matters most is there with him and will one day be made complete. That that intimacy is the thing deep down that he longs for. That joy, that security, all of those things, that's what anchors him. And he knows that's what awaits him. He's being like pulled towards it into eternity. And there's part of him that's like... I just want to be done. <laughs> but he's looking at his friends and he's going, okay, not yet, because that joy for God and that joy for them, it's all interconnected. That love that he has for God, he takes and he gives to them and finds that joy there as he's writing this letter. I'm sure his heart is filled with joy. How important for us that wherever we are, we're not just getting stuck looking at our circumstance, but able to see God with us. But then to turn towards God in that space to receive that strength that comes. I think some of the most intimate times I've had with God have been in times that were really hard. 
really difficult where all of a sudden it was like, finally it takes that much for me to kind of cry out. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, God is here. That's the alchemy. That's the transformation. It transforms this space that we're in to sacred ground. Transforms our heart into a heart that's surrendered. Transforms our lives in that we start affecting everything around us with that presence. And this work, Paul's going, it's light and it's momentary, the struggle. But it's doing a work of the greatest value. He says in 2 Corinthians, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Once again, reorientation back to what matters. With this God who looks right into our hearts and sees just who he made us to be. I love that story of Gideon where he's this like cowardly farmer down at the bottom of a well threshing his wheat for fear of being seen and an angel comes and says, mighty warrior. Like God, when he looks into our life, he sees who we're becoming. He sees who he's made us to be. I didn't read this in the first service, so this is the bonus here. But this is from Henry Nouwen. He says, I know that the fact that I'm always searching for God, always struggling to discover the fullness of God, always yearning for the complete truth, tells me I've already been given a taste of God, of love, and of truth. I can only look for something that I have, to some degree, already found. How can I search for beauty and truth unless that beauty and truth are already known to me in the depth of my heart? It seems that all of us as human beings have deep inner memories of the paradise we've lost. Maybe the word innocence is better than the word paradise. We were innocent before we started feeling guilty. We were light. We were in the light before we entered into the darkness. We were at home before we started to search for a home. Deep in the recesses of our mind and hearts, there lies hidden the treasure we seek. We know it is preciousness, and we know that it holds the gift we most desire, a life stronger than death. This is like the weight of glory. That word glory in the Hebrew means weight. This is the work that's taking place for Paul. That there, in the middle of this prison, Jesus meets him and transforms his heart more and more fully into the kind of glory that will remain. As he says, our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Some questions for you guys as we close. Are there situations in your life that are creating discouragement or anxiety? It's probably a yes. Are you able to find God in the midst of them?
Imagine it for a minute. I like how Paul had us, Paul Jackson had us imagine that early in worship. How does God's presence change your circumstance? Number two, what are the longings or passions in your heart? Are there desires that you have left aside? Are there passions that you've given up on? Are there things that God has given you that have gone unused? The truth is, I think God like stirs those things, reignites those things, oftentimes those deep longings that are there. He wants to draw those things out more and more fully. How often do you find yourself seeking approval from others, approval from God? What would it be like to know that you're that you are already God's beloved, his joy. How would this affect the way you live your days? A friend of mine just shared that he had this dream and like God was speaking to him in this dream. And I said, well, what did God say? And he goes, he said, we love you so much. It's like, oh, it's so beautiful. And an assignment, sorry, Beth optional but do you have a rule of life spend some time this week and think about what yours might be maybe it's a scripture that you like hold to and go this is it like all things are possible like through Christ all things are possible whatever that is ask God what he thinks that rule should be stand with me Sure appreciate you guys. Thanks for being here. We've got sandwiches afterward. We're going to stick around and just eat together. And um, if you'd like prayer, you can come down. We'll pray with you. But um, I want to leave you all with a blessing. And Darby, I want to meet your baby girl. (laughs) But I pray that God would bless you and keep you. God would make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And God would lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here.